Good morning. Today's Bible reading comes from the letter to the Hebrews. Um, it's a continuation from our passage that we heard last week, so we take it off um, from chapter 1, verse 5, and we'll read through to chapter 2, verse 4. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father? Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. The scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape? if we ignore so great a salvation. This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. This is the word of the Lord. Morning everyone. My name's Nat, I'm one of the ministers here at St Jude's and it's really lovely to be with you this morning and opening up this little part of the book of Hebrews. I wonder if you recognise any of the faces on the screen or if you know what they have in common. Full disclosure, I don't recognise any of them but I was hoping that some of you might be a bit more hip than me. Uh, these people are all apparently influencers. Now, I don't know if you follow influencers. I still remember who I was talking to about six or seven years ago who mentioned this word influencer, and I had to ask what it meant. Uh, I was a bit slow on the uptake, uh, but to be fair, uh, this idea of someone being an influencer has only been around for about 12 years, I think. Now, you might wonder what they do. Well, they influence people. 
People buy things, they listen to things, they have opinions about things because they have seen or heard or listened to an influencer uh, say something about something. Even if you don't, lots of people do listen to influencers, they follow them. And even if you don't listen to influencers, there are probably lots of other people who you listen to. There are so many voices in our lives, aren't there? Think about your workplace. Uh, there are people you listen to there, maybe some like your boss because you have to, but maybe you have colleagues whose opinions you respect, whose expertise you respect, and so you listen to them. Politically, there are voices we listen to, aren't there? Maybe you lean one way or another on the political spectrum and there are some people you prefer to listen to. When it comes to world affairs and public issues, maybe there's a, a particular journalist you like to listen to, a particular publication that you like to read. And then think about your personal life when you're making decisions. Maybe there are particular friends whose opinions you value, particular family members who you listen to when you're trying to make a decision. It's interesting to reflect on who we listen to, on what we listen to them about and why we listen to them. Our passage this morning is all about listening and salvation. It's about who we listen to. It's about how we listen. And it's about what happens when we don't listen well. So let's have a closer look. The passage and the outline are in the news sheet. So if you can have that open, that would be really great. Now, you might have noticed when Dave read for us that the passage started a little bit awkwardly. For to which of the angels did God ever say? It's because this is part of a flow of thought which started earlier in verse 4. So reading from verse 4, it makes a bit more sense. The son became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say? So what's happening here in verses 5 to 14 is that we hear lots of evidence supporting this statement that the, the son is superior to the angels. Uh, I was a lawyer a really long time ago. I feel like I could be back in court tendering evidence in this section. Exhibit 1, Your, your Honour. The son is, uh, to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? So we'll look at all the evidence in a minute. But first of all, you might wonder, what's with the angels? Alex mentioned last week that uh, angels in the Bible are primarily messengers from God who announce God's word to people. So you might be reminded of Mary and Joseph. An angel came to each of them separately to tell them that Mary was going to give birth to the baby Jesus. But what Hebrews has in mind here in particular is the role of the angels in the Old Testament in the giving of the law to God's people. In Acts chapter 7, uh, in Stephen's speech to the Sanhedrin, he refers to the law that was given through angels. And again in Galatians chapter 3, Paul writes that the law was given through angels. So angels have a really important role to play as God's messengers and givers of the law in the Old Testament. And we learn a bit more here as well about the angels. We learn that they are to worship the Son in verse 6. 
We learn in verse 7 that God makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. I think the idea there is that angels are servants of God doing God's bidding. It's an idea picked up again in verse 14. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Angels are servants of God for the benefit of humans, of all those who will be saved. But as we go on, we'll see that the focus isn't really on the angels. They're just there to magnify the sun. But why then is there so much effort to prove that the sun is superior to the angels? And how can that help us? We'll see as we keep working through Hebrews that all the way through the book, we hear comparisons like this between the Old Testament and the New Testament, between the Old Testament and Jesus. So in chapters 1 and 2, we hear about Jesus being superior to the angels, about Jesus' message being superior to the angels' message. And then later on, we hear that Jesus is better than Moses, that he offers a better rest than the Old Testament rest, that he's a better high priest who offers a better promise and a better hope. It seems that the Christians who first received this letter or heard this as a sermon were feeling pressure to return to the ways of the Old Testament. Reading between the lines, they were Jewish Christians, and so members of their Jewish community were probably pressuring them. And we can imagine their, their reasoning. The law is good. It was given by the angels in all their glory. It was given to Moses, the great high priest. Come back to the law. That's the context for what we're reading this morning. For most of us, that's clearly not going to be a pressure that we feel. We're unlikely to want to go back to the glorious days of the Old Testament law. We're unlikely to be enticed by the glory of the angels in the way the hearers of Hebrews were. But this comparison is still really helpful for us because we learn a lot from it about who Jesus is. And that's a really highly contested question today, isn't it? There's probably less familiarity with Jesus in a city like Melbourne today than there has been for a long time. And that can put us under pressure. Maybe we're troubled sometimes by doubts about who Jesus really is. Is it reasonable to believe what we believe about Jesus? What do we actually believe about Jesus identity. You might be someone who feels really confident in what you believe about Jesus and who he is. Or maybe you have some questions. Around us, I certainly have uh, friends and family who have questions about who Jesus is. Maybe you have people like that in your life too. Right here in Hebrews, we learn some amazing things about who Jesus is. As I've already said, the basic message is that Jesus is better than the angels. And the method is really clever, especially for Christians who are being pressured to turn back to the Old Testament laws, to their Jewish practice. Because the writer uses the Old Testament itself to show Jesus' superiority. If the Old Testament says Jesus is better, surely there's no need to turn back to the Old Testament practice or belief. And I think this method helps us as well. We see that the Old Testament is a Christ-centered book 
we learn a lot from it about who Jesus is. And the Old Testament is God's word to us. Six times in Hebrews chapter one, we hear God says, followed by a quote from the Old Testament. God still speaks to us through the Old Testament. And he speaks to us, as he speaks to us here, we learn five things about Jesus' identity. Firstly, Jesus is the son of God the Father, as we see in verse five. To which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father? The implied answer to the question, of course, is none of the angels are ever addressed as the son of God the Father. Jesus is the one and only son of the Father. The Old Testament quotes here are from Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7. These were two of the Old Testament passages that the early Christians used most frequently when they were struggling to articulate who Jesus is. Both of these passages speak of the Messiah, the King, the ultimate son of David, as God's own special son. And the New Testament echoes this testimony at really key parts of Jesus' life. At his baptism in Mark 1, a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. In the transfiguration when Jesus was on the mountain praying with Peter and James and John, his face was changed, his clothes were bright like lightning. And we read this in Luke 9, a voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I have chosen, listen to him. And Romans chapter 1 says of Jesus' resurrection that through the spirit of holiness he was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So who is Jesus? Hebrews tells us Jesus is the eternal son of God the Father. He always has been, he always will be. The Old Testament points forward to Jesus as the son of God. The New Testament confirms it. Secondly, we see here that Jesus is worthy of worship in verse 6. Again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. This is a quote from Moses' song in Deuteronomy 32, on the edge of the promised land. The logic is pretty clear. When the son is born, the angels are to worship him. So the son must be superior to the angels. But there's also a bigger question here for us, a question about our worship. Because if the angels are to worship Jesus the Son, so too are we. And so the question for us is, do we truly worship Jesus the Son? Do we offer him the true and proper worship of our bodies as living sacrifices, of our minds, of our whole lives, as Romans 12 urges? Jesus is the Son of God the Father. Jesus is worthy of our worship. Thirdly, and linked to that, we see in verse 8 that Jesus is the eternal God and King. This verse is a quote from Psalm 45. It was a psalm written for the King of Israel about the King of Israel. It addresses the King as God's representative on earth. But Jesus fulfills that in himself. He is the eternal God and King. He is a king who is perfectly just, a king who hates wickedness, a king who loves righteousness. How much do we long in our world for just and true leaders, for leaders who never 
do the wrong thing. Hebrews tells us we have one. Jesus is the eternal and perfect king of all. He is reigning now, but we don't yet fully see him reigning, although we will one day when he returns. Fourth, we see in this passage that Jesus is the eternal creator in verses 10 to 12, quoting from Psalm 102. Jesus is the eternal one. He was there at the beginning. His years will never end. He created all things we read here. He's in control of all things. The image here of the created order as a robe is really amazing. Heaven and earth will one day pass away. The sun's power is such that he rolls up the creation like a robe. It's really evocative, isn't it? But Jesus will always remain. We read later in Hebrews 13 that Jesus remains the same yesterday and today and forever. This reminder that Jesus is our creator helps us with issues like climate change. Our role as stewards of God's creation means we should always work for the good of our planet. But when things look like they're going badly, we don't need to despair. We can always be confident that Jesus remains in control of his creation, that even when it wears out, he will remain. Finally and fifthly here in this passage, we see that Jesus is the victorious king. Psalm 110 is a really important psalm uh, in the book of Hebrews and it's quoted here. It's a psalm about the enthronement of God's true king at God's right hand. It's about the sovereign rule that he will exercise until everything that thwarts his purposes of justice and salvation are defeated. The son has sat down already at the right hand of God, the place of highest honour and power in the universe. One day, victory over all of his enemies will be his. Some of you might know Colin Buchanan. Uh, he really nailed this in his song. Jesus is the mighty, mighty king. God made him the boss of everything. This is an incredible portrait of Jesus that's painted in Hebrews chapter 1. Jesus is the son of God the Father, the eternal creator, the eternal God and victorious king. He is worthy of our worship. He is better than all things. He is better than the angels. Now just imagine for a moment, imagine meeting an angel who had a message from God for you. It would be amazing, wouldn't it? Uh, people are terrified when they see uh, an angel in the Bible, but it would be amazing. Would you listen to that message? I would. What we've just heard, though, is that God has sent an even better messenger than an angel. It's a bit like getting a call from your kid's school. If it's a member of the admin team, you're not too worried. If the call is from your child's head of year teacher, uh, you might feel uh, a sense that this might be important. If it's a call from the principal, then you really pay attention. Because of who Jesus is, he is worth listening to. That's the conclusion Hebrews takes us after painting this portrait. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, because of who Jesus is, we must pay the most careful attention to what we have heard so that we do not 
drift away. We'll come back to that in a moment. But as we keep reading, we see that not only is Jesus better than the angels, but his message is better than their message. Verse 2, for since the message spoken through angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? Election campaigns are full of messages, aren't they? Flyers, uh, social media posts, TV ads, radio ads, uh, policy announcements. I'm not sure how much of the content actually cuts through, but the theory is that we're meant to be listening to the different messages and then making a decision about who we think is the best person to vote for, the best message to vote for. Here in Hebrews, it's not so much about competing messages like an election campaign, because we've already seen from the way the author is setting up his argument that the message of the angels in the Old Testament was fulfilled in Jesus. The angels' message was good, but Jesus' message is one of so great a salvation. Jesus' message is better because it fulfills the promises of the Old Testament. We see in verse 3 that the salvation of Jesus' message was first announced by the Lord. This is the Lord Jesus. And if you read uh, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, you hear Jesus announcing his message. Particularly, he announces it near the beginning of Matthew, Mark and Luke. Matthew chapter 4. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Mark chapter 1, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus stood up in the synagogue at Nazareth. He unrolled the scroll of Isaiah 61. And he announced that he was the fulfillment of God's promise there. His promise to proclaim good news to the poor, freedom, healing the year of the Lord's favour. This was a message confirmed to the person who wrote Hebrews by eyewitnesses of Jesus, those who heard him. So clearly the writer of Hebrews wasn't an eyewitness, but he heard about Jesus from those who were. In verse 4, God also testified to this message of salvation that Jesus brought. God testified by signs, wonders and various miracles, by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. If you read the Gospels, you see these signs and miracles and wonders that accompanied Jesus' life and preaching. And if you read the book of Acts and some of the letters in the New Testament, you see the church empowered as the Holy Spirit gives people gifts. Jesus brings a message of a great salvation, the message he himself proclaimed, confirmed by eyewitnesses, testified to by works of God. His message is contrasted with that of the angels in verse 2. The message spoken through angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment. This is the message of the Old Testament law. We read it in books like Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 28 in particular spells out the consequences of both obedience and disobedience to the law. God's blessing for obedience, God's curse for disobedience. 
But if the message of the angels came with consequences attached, how much more, asks Hebrews, does the great salvation of Jesus, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? It's often said that the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and judgment, and the God of the New Testament is a God of love. It's a false dichotomy not found in the Bible. And the movement of these verses actually goes the other way. The greater message of salvation in the New Testament implies a greater punishment for rejecting God's Son. Hebrews chapter 9 summarises this message of great salvation offered by the Son, but also judgment for those who fail to heed the message. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Hearing about punishment and judgment is incredibly sobering, isn't it? It's a reality acknowledged here to urge us in a different direction, to urge us to pay attention to what we've heard in God's Son. So the flow of thought from the beginning of chapter 1 to chapter 2, verse 4, goes like this. We have heard the message of God's great salvation through his glorious Son, the perfect and powerful King. Therefore, pay attention to what we've heard so we do not drift away because there is no escape from God's judgment if we ignore this great salvation. Years ago, I was swimming on one of the northern beaches in Sydney. I think it was a Saturday. I'd been in a meeting all day. It was when I was a ministry trainee. And so one of my colleagues and I headed off to the beach as a kind of recovery strategy. Uh, it was a good strategy. It was a beautiful afternoon. We got to the beach. It was quite late, so it wasn't crowded. Uh, the lifesavers had gone home. Uh, the water was warm. It was just glorious. Uh, we were swimming, and I stayed in the water longer than my colleague, Pete, and I was having a great time. I was bobbing away behind the breakers, kind of daydreaming, floating in the water until I suddenly realised that I was way further out than I had realised. I looked back at the beach and I saw Pete waving energetically, telling me to come in, I was too far out. I was scared in an instant, my heart started pounding and I started swimming. It took me a long time uh, to get back to the shore. It took a lot of hard swimming, I was scared. And to be honest, swimming at the beach has never been the same since. It was so easy for me to drift in the water there. It was dangerous to drift. And the same is true with the great salvation that Jesus offers us. It's easy to drift away and it's dangerous to drift. As I said earlier, we're not likely to drift in the same way that the first readers of this book were. But I think we're all vulnerable to drifting. And like me in the water, we may not even notice. I wonder what that might look like for you. 
Perhaps we're vulnerable because even though we acknowledge our need to depend on God, we really function in our own strength. And we seem to get by okay. But maybe that makes us lazy or passive in our obedience to God. And we drift away from him. Perhaps we're vulnerable because we hear attractive narratives in the society around us. Narratives that offer fulfilment in our career, fulfilment in our financial security, fulfilment in our family. And we drift in those directions and let them shape our lives. Perhaps we're sure that Jesus is good, but not convinced that he's the best. And so we fill our lives with lots of good things and squeeze Jesus in around the edges until maybe we stop squeezing him in at all and we drift away. Perhaps sometimes we just don't think. We follow the patterns of the people around us as we make decisions, decisions about jobs, about our children, about schooling, about homes, about our holidays. And so maybe our lives become shaped more by the created rather than the creator. Perhaps we're just comfortable. We don't really need God. And so we drift away. Perhaps we have questions about what the Bible means for us today, about how it addresses big contemporary issues. And the complexity of those questions just seems too hard to address. And so we drift towards another narrative. Perhaps we've been disappointed or hurt in our lives and we don't know what that means about Jesus, about the salvation that he offers. And so we lose momentum in trusting him. Perhaps we've been frustrated by the church or hurt or disappointed by the church. And so we drift away to protect ourselves. Perhaps we've seen other people drifting and we don't know what to make of that. And so we drift too. Perhaps we want something more from God, a personal message, a bigger experience. And so we go looking for that, looking for spiritual experiences. But we don't keep our eyes on the salvation that Jesus offers. What do you think it is for you? I've felt a number of these different pressures over the years. I think we're all vulnerable to drifting. And it's really helpful if we can identify our vulnerability because that's a step towards not drifting away. None of this means we can't enjoy the good things in our lives. It doesn't mean we can't learn from the wisdom of the world. But it does mean that always what we hear from the sun is what helps us to critique everything else that we hear. So brothers and sisters, let's pay the most careful attention to what we have heard from Jesus the Son because God has sent the ultimate messenger with the most important message we will ever hear. This passage is like Pete on the beach waving his arms like crazy to call me in. The antidote to drifting is to pay the most careful attention to what we've heard from the Son. It's not easy to do that. So what might this look like for us? My first suggestion might sound a bit like a Sunday school answer. But coming to church every week, reading the Bible regularly, joining a connect group are three great strategies. 
Doing those things doesn't guarantee that we'll be paying careful attention to Jesus, but they give us the opportunity to do that. We're at the beginning of the year. It's a time when we're thinking about what might our lives look like this year. So please reach out if you'd like to join a connect group. Reach out if you'd like some good resources for helping you to read the Bible. Commit to being at church each week. There are lots of other ways that we can be working on paying careful attention to what we hear from Jesus. Listening to Christian music or podcasts, reading Christian books, being accountable to a Christian friend. Sometimes paying attention, paying careful attention is really hard work. I've been a Christian for a long time now. Sometimes it feels like it gets harder to trust God as I get older. The pain I see in the world seems worse. I have questions about what's happening to people I love. As I try to pay attention to the sun, I'm really thankful for people who listen to me, for people who talk to me, for people who are praying for me. I'm really thankful at the moment for the Psalms. And I'm thankful for Christian music, which helps me to lament as well as to praise God. I'd love to hear from you what your challenges are and I'd love to hear how you're working on paying careful attention to the sun. I want to finish with a final story. It's a story some of you may know. It's a story of Jason and the sirens from Greek mythology. Jason was a hero and the leader of the Argonauts. He led them on their quest for the Golden Fleece. On their return journey, they had to sail past sirens who lived on three small, rocky islands. These sirens were half woman, half bird. They lured sailors to destruction on the rocks by their beautiful singing. Orpheus was a legendary musician. He was with Jason on this quest. And when he heard the voices of the sirens, he drew his lyre and he played music that was more beautiful, louder than the songs that the sirens were singing. It drowned out the sirens' bewitching songs and it kept the sailors safe from destruction. Brothers and sisters, there are so many voices competing for our attention. There are so many voices offering satisfaction and the good life. So many bewitching songs in our world which will cause us to drift. But only one voice offers salvation. Only one voice offers the truly good life. Only one voice can keep us safe from destruction. God has spoken to us by his son. Therefore, we must pay the most careful attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. We're going to sing now as we reflect on what we've just heard here in Hebrews 1 and 2. O great God of highest heaven, occupy my lowly heart, own it all and reign supreme, conquer every rebel power. Let's stand and sing.